The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. In the old days, if you wanted to buy and plant a fruit tree, there were a few things you needed to consider. And a big one was what plant hardiness zone you lived in. And that's because not all trees will survive in all climates. Here in Toronto, Canada, we can easily grow a wide range of fruiting trees, including apples, cherries, pears, and plums. But many other plants won't survive our cold winters. So plant hardiness zones are supposed to tell us which plants will thrive in our climates and which plants will not. But people are starting to question the plant hardiness zone system. Our climate is changing and there's a lot of extreme weather events today. So the question is, are plant hardiness maps still useful? And that's what we're gonna talk about in the show today. I have two research scientists from Natural Resources Canada joining me to discuss this topic. They are Dan McKenney, PhD, and John Pedlar. In a minute, we're going to talk about the benefits and the limitations of the plant hardiness zone system. But first, I would love to hear from you. Do you consider plant hardiness zones when you choose your plants and trees? Have you seen your climate change in recent years? And if so, how has it affected your fruit trees? And do you still think that climate zone maps are helpful? Email us your question, your comment, or write us just to say hi during the live show today, and we will enter you into today's contest to win a book called Now is the Time for Trees, Making an Impact by Planting the World's Most Valuable Resource. It's by Dan Lamb of the Arbor Day Foundation with co-author Laureen Edwards Forkner, and it's valued at $19.95. So send us an email to instudio101 at gmail.com. And do remember to include to write your first name and where you're writing from. So that is instudio101 at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. So Dan and John, welcome to the show today. Hi, Susie. Thanks very much for the invite. And it's great to have you here. It's great to have you on the show. So now um, tell me a little bit about plant hardiness zones. What are they and how does it, how do they work? How does the system work? Well, John, I'll have a go at it. Uh, I think as you alluded to, Susan, it's it's kind of like a generalized map that tries to give people an indication of what plants are suited for my area or your area, uh, typically related to climatic conditions. But a tricky thing with a single general map is that it's trying to force fit everything into one, one kind of legend or classification. But uh, if you think about it like birds, unless unless you're a seagull, birds have their special habitat that they like trees have their special habitat they're like so we're trying to force fit these general preferences into one general useful map 
I like that comparison because nobody questions with birds that, you know, that there are certain birds that like tropical climates. And yet with trees, we think we can go to the garden center, grab whatever we feel like, pop it in the ground, and that you just assume that it's going to work, but it really might not. Well, that's right. I think, I think that experience over time has given people the benefit of, of knowing what can fit into particular zones. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there is not a lot of testing that goes on or that had gone on into what does fit into the zones. I don't know if you want to get into the Canadian zone right now, but, but uh, the, the Canadian system was really based on the testing of just 174 plants. Uh, back in the early 1960s and then they worked out what uh, they worked out a statistical model that identified the suitability of the plants to uh, in 108 locations across the country and uh, they came up with a nice formula that re relates to seven different climate variables and they they um, basically had this statistical model and then they they at 640 weather stations they drew hand drew lines on a map that basically indicated where those zones were so it's fairly straightforward it works to a certain degree but there's not been a lot of testing since then okay i'm going to back up here for a second did you say they tested 174 plants like there's more than that in terms of even just in a local garden center there's more than 174 plants like they what plants did they test? And, and then how do we know what other plants will fit where in the system? There seems to be a big hole there. Am I missing something? No, I think, I think you're, you're right there, Susan. Um, there was uh, uh, quite a range of, you know, 174 species. Uh, again, that was back in the 1960s that they were, were the original plants that they used to develop the zones in Canada. Um, that's not to say that there's been no testing since then. There, there are facilities uh, both in Canada and the United States that uh, you know, devote uh, significant effort to testing plants. But I think it's generally agreed that there is a weakness around, um, well, with the broad range of plants that are available, as you've pointed out, um, there's certainly some that slip through the cracks and probably don't get as rigorous of hardiness testing as they should. Okay, so let's, we're talking, you guys have mentioned the Canadian system. How does the Canadian system differ from the American system of plant hardiness zones? Well, the Canadian system is based on seven different climatic variables. We have a pretty harsh climate up in this part of the world, uh, even in Toronto, Susan, uh, at times. Um, so these variables were the mean minimum temperature of the coldest month, frost-free period uh, in days, rainfall from June through November, the uh, maximum average temperature of the warmest month, so, uh, rainfall in January. Clearly, rainfall in January is different in place like Victoria, British Columbia versus, I don't know, Chapleau, Ontario, where rain in January would be pretty, pretty unusual occurrence, perhaps occurring a little more now. Uh, the mean maximum snow depth, snow protects plants in the winter, um, and maximum wind gust in 30 years. Those were the variables that, that fit, uh, the, uh, that were used that uh, created the best formula for the researchers from Agriculture Canada back in the 1960s when they did this work. Okay, so in Canada, we have seven variables, seven variables, including snowfall and wind and rain. We're keeping everything in mind. What about in the United States? They have a very beautiful plant hardiness zone map with lots of great colors. <laughs> if you've seen it, I love the map. It's very attractive. Yeah. Um, what, how many variables do they have in the United States? So in the United States, they've uh, they've zoned right in on extreme annual minimum temperature. So it's it's uh, it's a it's a single variable system in the United States. Um, and should note that that's actually a widely the most widely used system in the world, as as far as I know. It's used across North America, including Canada, and in Europe as well. So it's. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's done a good job and it's been uh, widely uptaken by, by different regions. Um, so, so it's just, uh, it's just a bit of a different system though, clearly than, than what was developed in Canada. 
So here I am in Canada and I want to buy a plant from the United States. Let's say I want to bring a fruit tree over or something and I'm zone 5B, whatever. Um, if, if I have different variables than the US climate zone map, am I safe getting a tree that's, that is there any kind of conversion I need to do? Well, some of the work that we've done, we've basically mimicked the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture's approach. We've got maps of, of extreme minimum temperature as well. So you can identify in Canada what the U what the USDA zone is for your part of the world. Um, I think a lot of people think that all you need to do is add one. The Canadian zone is one higher than the US zone, but it's not actually the case. It's a lot more complicated because there's, call it spatial variation in the, the US zonation that is doesn't mesh exactly with each zone. So, um, zone 5a could be zone four in canada could be zone five in canada in fact we've even written a paper on how much variation there is across all these zones in fact the canadian zones span i think uh uh well eight or nine usda zones at times again because of our because of the fact that we have these other variables it complicates things and snow is a big thing it does protect plants I want to talk about snow, this, what you just said, because we got a great email. Um, it's from David from Michigan, Lansing, Michigan. His question is, what are your thoughts on heavily mulching of a tree, like a fruit tree, to extend your hardiness zone? Please enter me into the draw of the book you're offering. <laughs> that's, from, that's from David. But you were talking about how snow insulates the roots of a tree and of plants. What about mulching with wood chips? Can, can, can that extend? Can that mean that a more tender tree can survive in a colder climate if you do that? Yeah, I've, I've heard that as a method uh, for helping to protect roots. I mean, not, as you mentioned, unlike what, what snow would do for roots as well. So that, that could certainly help. Um, there's, there are other aspects to cold hardiness other than just protecting those roots, although that's important. There are other uh, tissues uh, that can be damaged either, you know, uh, through, through early fall frosts or through late spring frosts. So um, mulching, mulching can help, but it's, it's not going to solve all your cold hardiness issues. So what Might you're just, saying, uh, mm -hmm, go ahead. So yeah. I was just going to add that one of the reasons why I think rainfall in Canada in January is an important variable is that roots don't like to get frozen. And because we have colder temperatures, uh, rain in January followed, of course, by colder weather can, can be quite well cause mortality to plants so um it's it's very more uh problematic so in a place like michigan which is just south of where we are john and i um yeah i think anything you can do to protect plants and if people are you know there are microclimates that exist near people's homes because of uh they may be in a hollow that might cause cold air pooling but if they're near a house that might protect uh and and basically be a a little bit more um, uh, protective of plants that you know would be in the zone that you are so you know you might be lucky in that regard yeah there's room there's wiggle room and especially Absolutely. for creative people who might want to experiment um, i think that's a really interesting point let me see we got a couple more interesting emails next one is from linda and Linda's from Washington, D.C. Linda writes, hello, Susan. Congratulations on your new book. That's very nice. Thank you, Linda. Yes. Grow fruit trees fast. My new book. Um, so Linda writes, I think any zone information is very important for growing any plant. Good topic today. Okay. So for Linda, this is not a system we, we throw away. You know, it gives us some broad strokes, helps us figure out, you know, it gives us a starting point. Um, we've got an email from Anne. Anne writes, hello, Susan, good topic today. The zone topic is very important. Hello to your guests, listening to you from Ottawa, Ontario. Thank you, Anne. And here we've got a question from Michelle. What role does a plant's origin 
place of propagation, have on its ability to survive. Epigenetics is a fascinating science with regards humans. Does this also apply to plants? Hmm. Definitely. Yes. I'm going to let John answer that one because this is something that uh, we have talked a lot about in other aspects of our work. And uh, it absolutely is a fascinating subject. Yeah, um, it, it is. And I, I'm by no means an expert in it, but I can give my, my two cents for sure. Uh, you know, the origin of where a plant originates from um, has is important in a few ways. First of all, we find that plants tend to be adapted to their local conditions. So, um, so that's going to kind of dictate how well uh, a plant is, is going to grow where it's planted. Um, and then on top of that, and, and this is kind of more in, in terms of wild populations, but I'm sure it applies to garden populations as well. There's sort of recently been insights that the, uh, the temperatures that, that tree seeds develop at in, uh, while still in the, in the maternal cones, um, that that actually impacts the preferred temperature of the seeds that, that, that are developed. So for example, if you've got seeds that are developing throughout the summer in a really hot summer, even though there may be not in a particularly warm location, but it's a particularly hot summer, those seeds um, have shown evidence of being able to grow under warmer conditions. And that's, that's what they call the epigenetic effect. It's where the environment is actually sort of determining the characteristics of, of the offspring. So Michelle, I know, because I know Michelle is from Nova Scotia. And I find that a really interesting question because we have talked so much about the origin of a plant in terms of, well, it came from China, you know, a thousand years ago. We always keep that in mind. But this idea that where the seed is started, even if it's thousands of miles away from where that plant evolved, that that itself could make a difference. And I know Michelle has a fruit tree nursery, uh, Maple, is it Maple Grove? Correct me, Michelle, if I got it anyways, Maple something in Nova Scotia, excellent nursery. And they sell uh, rootstocks to people who graft fruit trees. So often people who graft fruit trees in Canada have to import rootstocks from elsewhere. So what a great question. Um, and, and it seems like from your, uh, is it your research or you've been reading research about it? Um, tell me a little bit, John, about your specialty. It is related. Um, yeah, I mean, it's more on the forestry side, but uh, we've um, done a fair bit of research looking at, at that question of how, um, you know, I, how moving seeds around might help to adapt to climate change. So for example, if you, if you, um, you know, gather seeds from a Southern population, which is, you know, adapted to growing under warmer conditions um, and say, move those northward where we're anticipating that the climate's gonna be warming up in the next uh, few decades, then is that going to uh, help to initiate populations that are sort of pre-adapted to the kind of climate that we're expecting at that location? So. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, let's have a look. A couple more emails. We've got Dan writing from Allendale, Michigan. And Dan says, I am amazed at the U.S. fixation on our simple definition of plant hardiness zone. It's easy, but it doesn't satisfy the needs of a plant. I look forward to your conversation. So, you know, uh, here, uh, Richard or Dick is, is saying basically, yeah, it's got its limitations. We've got one more email here. Hi, Urban Forestry. Love the show today. Please enter me into the contest. I live in Omaha, Nebraska, and that's from Roy. So, okay, we've talked about the U.S. system, which has one factor. And we've talked about the Canadian system, where which has seven factors. Somebody in the 60s did lots of research and they hand drew a map. Okay, so now we can find out what climate zone we are in by looking at a climate zone map, whether we're in Canada or in the United States. Um, so now when you buy plants, is it pretty obvious, like on the label of the plant, 
that what zone that they are um, appropriate for? Do you, do you find that it's been well publicized? Yeah, I, I think so. Despite what I kind of uh, said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not trying to slag off on the hardiness zones. They are something that have worked in many cases for many years. They do have limitations as your listeners have identified. And um, so I believe that most plants also come with the experience of local gardeners and nurseries that sell them. I, I think most nurseries are not, they're not gonna sell things that are not suited to their area. In fact, I mean, I know of stories even from my own location that people did not want to sell them horse chestnut trees, for example, um, uh, because they're not considered to be suited to the zone here in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. But I also know, given that we're both foresters, that there are some horse chestnut trees that have been brought by people. Um, to and they grow here and they've they've done very well here there's some large trees so people push the envelope i i think that over time experience has really helped to calibrate the the recommendations of what plants are suited for your particular area i just wanted to also kind of mention here susan that another sort of more modern approach that we have on our website um, is basically the climatic signature for for many thousands of individual species, not just trees, but um, uh, also perennials, grasses, things that, uh, um, well, gardeners are interested in, not just, let's say, professional foresters or um, ecologists. So we can, we can do this. And these maps on our website cover both Canada and the United States. All we've needed to do is gather information about what grows at a, at series of locations. So we get data from like the Nature Conservancy in the US, US Forest Service, uh, conservation data centers in Canada, professional ecologists. We have a location of latitude and longitude, and we have spatial climate models that we can append a climate variable to each location. And basically that provides a signature of, of what climate those plants are suited to and then we map those things so it's an individualized or customized map for the climatic range of literally thousands of species and on the website we have maps that we call maps for gardeners because they don't include precipitation just temperature because of the idea that gardeners can add water but of course in in nature and more wild settings you got to rely on on what happens from the precipitation regimes there so so there are two kinds of maps there that, that give people insights about what would be suited to their area. So let's share, what is, how can people find the website, especially, you know, Canadians and Americans who want to maybe order something from over the border, they want to know what their, their climate zone is more precisely. Um, what, how can people find that page on the website with maps and that information? So the, the, the website that I'm referring to is just planthardiness.gc.ca. It's it, it, but it does cover the United States. Um, we don't have the USDA hardiness zones on there. We have our own version of it covering Canada uh, because we don't want to, you know, step onto the toes of the uh, the professionals down south. But um, you can you can look at the standardized map, but you can also look for uh maps for individual species and i think right now we've got i don't know 3000 3500 individual species you can try to look them up by a common name or a scientific name common names i just add is a little bit tricky because a common name in western canada might be a little different than a common name in eastern canada but we've tried to put a lot of effort into identifying a broad set of, of what might be common names so it's a yeah it's a it's a bit of a let's call it a rabbit hole of, um, of uh, opportunities to look at what might be able to be grown where. Okay, we have one more question, then we're gonna to go to a commercial break, but uh, this is a question from William. Not sure well where William is from. Susan, do your guests have books published? Well, um, we I'm just trying to think if we have books published, Dan, I don't think we have books per se. We have, we have, um, Lots of articles. Uh, yeah, we, we tend to uh, <laughs> sort of as, as research scientists, it's scientific articles that we uh, sort of 
focus on, I guess, mostly, although books, you know, periodically, if one's lucky, they get around to, to getting a book out there too, like Susan, you know, we could aspire to be like Susan, but um, um, we have certainly a number of publications in this area. I wonder what the best way to... Well, we've, uh, yeah, we've given out our uh, data, we've given out PowerPoint presentations to like master gardeners in Canada and local naturalists. Sometimes we've had uh, naturalist clubs or horticulture clubs uh, who find out about this work, ask for a poster, um, and we just help them talk about uh, about the work and also the opportunity to contribute to what grows in their location. So they can they have groups that can go around and I do basically an inventory of um, of their community, which is fantastic for us because it's real it's real citizen science in action. Well, I'll tell you what, oh, something I was thinking is uh, you can send me some links to any of the PowerPoints and I will put them. So when people listen to the podcast, they can link, they can click on the links. Right. And in in the meantime, the website that Dan mentioned would also have those, uh, those publications. Oh, perfect. Okay. Dan and John, you guys work together to update the climate zone map. That was not even your job and you did it. So I really want to talk about that after the commercial break. Are you guys able to hold on the line for a minute or two? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, good stuff. We have lots more to talk about after the break. So we're going to talk a little bit about updating climate zone maps. We're going to talk a little bit about climate change and how that's uh, throwing a monkey wrench into the whole system. But in the meantime, you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the new Fruit Tree Care book, Grow Fruit Trees Fast, and it's available on amazon.com. And we will be back right after the break. I'll see you then. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffletree Nursery. Call us today. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. Did you know that Susan Poisoner of OrchardPeople.com teaches fruit tree care courses online? Here's a testimonial from Roger, a student from Howe Island, Ontario. Some years ago, I retired and I wanted to have some fruit trees. So I did the usual, 
I went to the big box stores and, and bought what they had and I planted them and I had some successes but more failures. In fact, I was almost ready to give up when I discovered Susan's online course. It taught me a lot of what I thought I knew but didn't know. It's in uh, bite-sized pieces that you can easily understand and you can review the course whenever you want. Last year I had such success that this year I had to do very little in terms of pest management either with insects or with disease. If you want to grow organic fruit trees, join Susan for a workshop at orchardpeople.com workshops. For 10% off tuition, use the discount code podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. Right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner. So in the show today, we've been talking about plant hardiness zone maps, and we're asking what they are, and we're also exploring whether they still matter, considering our current unpredictable and changing climate. I have two research scientists with Natural Resources Canada joining me today to discuss this topic, and they are Dan McKenney, PhD, and Sean Pedlar, both from the Canadian Forest Service. Now, before we continue our conversation, I want to hear from you. Have you used plant hardiness zone maps to choose your fruit trees and your plants that you grow in your garden? Do you feel these maps have helped you become a more successful grower? Send us an email right now during the live show with your question with a comment or just to say hi, and we will enter you into today's contest. Our prize today is a copy of the book, Now is the Time for Trees, Making an Impact by Planting the World's Most Valuable Resource by Dan Lamb of the Arbor Day Foundation with co-author Laureen Edwards Forkner. It's valued at 1995 USD. To enter the contest, just send us an email at instudio101 at gmail.com and do be sure to include your first name and where you're writing from. That's instudio101 at gmail.com and we look forward to hearing from you. So plant hardiness zone maps, Dan and John, you guys took it upon yourselves to start uh, having a look at Canada's plants hardiness zone map and to update it. How did that all come about? Well, um, it's a bit of a story uh, about something that took on a life of its own. Um, back when I started working, I, I did my PhD in Australia and I did it in a place called the Center for Resources, Resource and Environmental Studies at the Australian National University, which was made up of some interesting people, one of whom um, did a lot of mathematical modeling. This guy actually had a PhD in pure mathematics. His name was Michael Hutchison. And he worked with ecologists and, and uh, agriculturalists. And one of the problems is maps of climate, maps of past weather. Well, you know, there's only a limited number of weather stations, and um, but people need to know what's the weather like or what has the climate been like in a place where there is no weather station. If you want to understand the role of climate in the distribution or abundance or productivity of plants and animals. In fact, so this guy, Mike Hutchison, developed these methods using pretty complex math, something called thin plate smoothing splines. Actually, somebody from Wisconsin 
uh, a quite famous mathematician named Grace Waba uh, developed these um, uh, methods. Anyway, um, Mike Hutchison developed this tool called ANU-SPLIN, which stands for Australian National University Spline Models. And um, when they first applied it, they actually used it to look into a lapid snake distribution. So as many people may know, snakes are pretty prevalent in Australia. And I wanted to know, well, what's the role of climate? In them? And it actually helps to identify places in the landscape where particular species may occur. So the short story is I did my PhD there. I had the opportunity to continue to work with them. We didn't have maps for Canada of climate um, like they had there. And I was able to bring that technology over. And what actually was the epiphany moment was one time I was out in my backyard with my son, my young son, and I saw a seed packet and I said, hey, we can do this. We can make maps of climate in Canada. And one of the applications is hardiness zones. We can update the, the hardiness zones for Canada and other things. And we've continued to do that. And we supply climate data uh, and work with Environment Canada, who are the weather people in Canada, uh, to actually distribute climate maps and climate data for all kinds of problems from looking at waterfowl distributions to tree growth, agricultural crop risks, all kinds of things. And this is, but this one is, of course, one of our most fun applications, plant hardiness zones. So, and John, what role do you play a different role? Uh, what role did you play in the updates? Uh, well, I was kind of uh, involved more on the technical side of, of the updates, um, as well as, you know, writing up the work and sort of analyzing the work as well. Uh, um, I think that was that was about the main part, wasn't it, Dan? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, John's always a bit too modest. He's he's uh, <laughs> he's very much a full partner in this effort and provides a lot of the ecological interpretations. And John's a great writer as well. So we've been a team for quite a few years now, perhaps longer than uh, he may want. But uh, no, we've had lots of fun on the way doing lots of different things that that are applications, including something you alluded to in the first half of the show about about um, uh, genetics. We do a lot of work on genetics and and uh, understanding about the migration of trees and and how, because of climate change, we might want to assist in the migration of trees. So let's talk now about climate change. So so here you guys are updating the system for Canada, the plant hardiness maps. Is climate change one of your considerations when you're doing those updates? Yeah, that's that's certainly one of the reasons why we undertook the updates. Uh, there's there's been two updates that we've done. Then one in 2000, and one in 2014. And um, in in the one in 2014, we're we're really able to focus in on the change over time um, because we were able to sort of compare that that update in 2014 right back to the original map, which was about a 50 year period. And we were able to say, so how much have these zones actually shifted over that 50 year period? And and had they shifted significantly or are we just being overdramatic? <laughs> well, I, it, uh, it, they've definitely shifted. Um, and it's, I guess the answer is that it depends on what part of the country you're in. In Western Canada, there've been much more drastic shifts in hardiness zones, um, upwards of three zones changes. Uh, so sort of like from a, a two to a, to a five kind of thing um, in some areas, not across the whole West or anything, but, uh, but in the East, it's been much more muted. I'd say about a shift of one zone on average, and even some areas where it's gone in the opposite direction, where, where it's gotten less cold or it's, it's gotten like, the zone has shifted to a more cold zone as opposed to a hotter zone. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We have an email here uh, from, let's see who it's from, from James. Hi, Susan. Excellent show today. Lots of information. Loving it from Toronto, Ontario. Thank you, James. And also, I wanted to read on what you guys were talking about uh, in terms of how much is the climate changing, how much of it is climate change, how much of it is hardiness zones. There was a whole conversation on Facebook, and I've got a few comments here I want to read. Patrick from Southern Germany writes, for us, it's not a shift in hardiness zones. 
but an increase in variability and extremes that's challenging. Does that resonate? Yeah, for, for sure, that resonates. That's very important. So something that people need to keep in mind is that the zones are basically an average. And as John, uh, John indicated, they're based on 30-year averages. But of course, 30 years are made up of 30 individual years. And um, uh, one of the papers that we did, we compared the U.S zones to the Canadian zones. And we looked at the variation through time that occurred uh, with the US zones. We haven't done that yet for Canada. We hope to do that. It's as if you applied that same formula for each individual year. But the, um, the variation actually was more extreme or more, more variable in Western Canada than it was in Eastern Canada, which is interesting. But it's also consistent with, with uh, what climate scientists uh, look at and study um, people from Environment Canada who really dive deep into the statistics at, at weather stations where they've got really high quality observations over long periods of time. So there is, there appears to be greater variation now and that's going to, you know, that's going to cause some problems. So, uh, you know, I, I know I've had some plants of myself that have uh, not survived. We had we had one of the early stories here when we started doing this stuff was somebody was successful in growing a peach tree here in Sault Ste. Marie, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and it grew to bear fruit, but then it actually died. Um, so unfortunate, but, um, you know, a reflection of um, the variation that we get and in the various variables that, that drive the survival of those plants. That makes sense. Well, here a couple more interesting comments here. Um, we've got Rick from Northern Indiana. Rick writes, last two years, we lost 75 to 85% of fruit tree crops due to mid-May hard freezes. We grow apples, plums, apricots, pears, pawpaws, and cherries. That is heartbreaking. Here's another one. Dave from Southern California. Dave writes, we're experiencing a shift in hardiness zones as well as unpredictable weather patterns here in Southern California. The entire month of January and early February were more like spring temperatures. Then we had a hard freeze in April. Rainfall patterns are also changing. In 2019-2020, we had double our normal rainfall. In 2021-2022, we've had about half of our normal rainfall. So is that typical for, you know, sort of a more Western state or province, that kind of extreme? Yeah, I, I mean, we've certainly heard about, about extremes in, in the Canadian uh, Western provinces as well. Um, I, think, uh, I think that that is the kind of, kind of thing that, that we're seeing. Um, it's... it's it's a real challenge to deal with those kind of, of conditions as well. I mean, um, it, I think I think when I think people are starting to get fairly aware of, of these drastic changes and extremes, but um, I think when you know we were kind of new to this climate change game, we were probably thinking, well, things are going to warm. Okay, well, you know, we can probably sort of roll with those punches. We'll you know plant varieties that are that are more suited to further southern locations and we, we can kind of you know change as needed but but these uh these changes and extremes have really thrown in a, a wrench in, into trying to to be able to adapt to uh climate change well, i think it's um, oh sorry go ahead well mm -hmm. i was just going to say uh it's not like a smooth path to a to a mm -hmm. warmer warmer planet there's noise it, things go up and down there's variation this polar vortex that you know here we live with uh, in ontario and indiana uh experience there um i think is disrupting the kinds of climate that that uh, we were we were used to right and so it, it the variation is challenging for plants so one of the things that we looked at john john in particular was things like late spring frosts um and fall spring so yes we get a a period of time where it looks like it's going to be a nice warm spring but then suddenly you get hit with a frost and if plants have already started their their march into into spring and summer with uh bud burst they're going to have very sensitive uh 
uh, tissue and it can cause big disasters. And that's that's happened in large, lar at, at large scales. Um, you know, there are quite uh, several documents, documentations of, of that of that happening in the wild, not just for sort of, let's say, gardeners. Yeah. So so here we got another comment from uh, northern Indi Indiana. So it's interesting. So but this one has a bit of a hopeful twist to it. Like, you know, it's like, where do we take it from here? We, we can it's there's so much to be sad about and to be concerned about. But OK, so this is what Bill writes from northern Indiana. I'm in northern Indiana and have lived in the same region for all of my 60 years. The biggest change is our coldest month used to be January, and now it's February. Then it warms up in March. Then we get severe cold spells and hard frosts mid-May that kill the flush of new growth. Then, of course, the tree has to recover from that drastic loss of primary foliage from the little branches that grew and then broke or froze. And and, uh, Dave, and and Bill says, and that makes the tree weaker and more vulnerable to pathogens and pests. But here's what Bill says that I think is interesting. He says, I've been looking for later blooming nut and fruit trees to compensate. I'm also growing more cold tolerant plants like fruiting quince. They can survive down to 24 degrees Fahrenheit with blooms and a flush of new growth out in the spring when these cold snaps occur. I think what Bill is saying is that with the fruiting quince, the, the, the blossoms and the new branches are just not as vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's a really good point that, that he makes there that I, I do think that there's, you know, no, no uh, sort of magic, <laughs> silver bullet here to uh, to sort of make, uh, you know, fix this problem, but but certainly trying to diversify as much as possible is, is one thing that can be done to try to help at least kind of minimize or spread around the impact so that you're not uh, looking at a total loss in, in any given year. One of the things that 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 we look at with with forest trees um, in the in the kinds of genetics trials that John mentioned a little earlier is the response not just to growth but to bud break. So you may get some a tree that grows a little slower um, because it has a later bud burst um, versus one that you're trying to maybe maximize the growth for, but it might be a little more vulnerable for 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 a period of time. So there are these trade offs that. And much depends on the sort of scale of of a, of a gardener versus a, a commercial grower of, uh, of of well of any plant that that may be out there. So there are those important trade offs that people have to think about. I and I think that that's the unique role that home growers can play or small scale growers because if I am growing fruit professionally and I'm selling it in the supermarkets or selling it from farmers markets I don't want to take too many chances but home growers are the ones that can experiment that can push the envelope a little bit that can be creative and I certainly know that there are a lot of fruit tree growers who have tried fantastic ways to protect their trees. Like for instance, in Ben Nobleman Park Community Orchard last year, our apricot trees were in full bloom. And then there was a night of frost predicted. So we all got together and we linked up our, we have all brought tarps, we tied them together. And as a group, we put these tarps on sticks and we put the all the, the we draped our apricot trees with this <laughs> these tarps to keep them that little bit warmer um, over the frosty night and then we took it off once a few days later once the frost had passed and we had tons of fruit on the tree right. that year so these are things that, that there is a unique role that home growers can play there's no way a commercial grower could do that to 10,000 apricot trees it just would not be possible yeah. Oh, exactly. So, yeah. 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 So, okay. We have an email here from Eric. Hello, Susan and guests. Oh, all right. He, Eric wants a reminder. Your the website that you're promoting that with the more information, could you remind us what that website is? Just uh, plant hardiness, all one word, dot GC dot CA. Or yeah, if you, if you type that into Google, it should come up. 
Google will help us with that. Planthardiness.gc.ca. Fantastic. Now, um, John, you have an interesting perspective as well, because I know you, um, you, you have a sugar bush or you, can you tell me a little bit about that? And, and have you experienced challenges in terms of climate change and, and hardiness with your sugar bush? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I do have a, a sugar bush now. It's um, it's one that we've had for five years now. So uh, I'm just kind of getting familiar with it. It it has been uh, used as a commercial sugar bush in the past, but right now uh, the lines were needing replacement, so that hasn't been done yet. So I've been just you know hobbying using it as a hobby uh, sugar bush, and I've got you know 50 buckets on on good old fashioned taps. Um, and, uh, you know, that plus a lot of hard work gets you a little bit of maple syrup at the end of the season. But um, but I guess one thing I've been struck by out in the sugar bush where you do spend a lot of time uh, thinking about climate and weather um, is just how variable it's been over the last five years. I mean, we've had early seasons, late seasons, short seasons, long seasons, good good sap flow years, poor sap flow years. So I'm just sort of trying to get my head wrapped around that, the amount of annual variability there is in that. And, I, and I'm not able to, at this point, sort of say if all of that is climate change or if any of that is climate change. Um, it's, it's, but it's, it's, uh, it's all been fun and it's all been a good learning experience for sure. Now I have done a, a bit of, um, looking into climate change impacts on SAP, uh, kind of publications in the literature. And um, you know, there's, there's not that many studies out there that have looked at it, but it, it generally they point to the fact that sort of not surprisingly, the season for SAP flow is, is um, moving forward in the calendar. So it's happening a bit earlier um, and it's ending a bit earlier. And it does appear that, that, um, that uh, sugar sugar levels in the sap might decline a little bit with these increasing temperatures. So, so people have kind of pulled that together to make some projections, uh, you know, for the coming century. And it and it uh, does look like, you know, they're projecting around uh, a month, uh, sort of sap flow dates moving forward about a month in, in the calendar with some reductions in syrup production. But I mean, it's not sort of the the all-out uh, disaster that is predicted for for some crops out there uh, certainly in Canada um, it would suggest that there's still going to be maple syrup being made um, for the next foreseeable decades anyway. Hey we're Canadians we can't do without our maple yeah, syrup I'm exactly. sorry that's just not an option so uh... Okay, I'd love to wrap up with both of you. Do you have any advice for listeners who are listening to this, thinking of buying new plants, thinking of climate change, thinking of climate zone maps or um, hardiness zone maps? What, what advice or recommendations would you have for us moving ahead as we adapt our gardens to a new world, whatever that's going to look like? John, do you want to go first or me? <laughs> well, advice is, is tough in this in this world. I, I do think that it's, a, as you mentioned, Susan, it's kind of a different situation for hobby gardeners versus um, <clears throat> large-scale operations. You can take a lot more risks and almost have fun with it as a hobby gardener. Try pushing the envelope, <clears throat> but not so much um, in the large-scale operation. I think you still need to exercise some caution as far as what varieties you're going to try. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and um, actually, Dan, I'll pass it over to you. Okay, okay. You have your drink of water there, John. Um, yeah, I think, I think yes, smaller uh, landowners, people who want to experiment, it can be a fun thing. And, uh, you know, talk to your nursery. They, they have experience in and should have experience because they talk to many people. So they will have a sense of the degree to which, you know, particular plants seem to be suited for their area or not. And then uh, one thing I want to say too, is that um, if, for those of listeners that may be interested, there are opportunities to contribute to something like a citizen science project. You can push the envelope, see what happens. Uh, when we take data, we ask people that to only contribute 
contribute observations of, of things that have grown for at least five years. These are meant to be sort of looking at the long-term average conditions and also things that survive more than, you know, one or two seasons or one or two years. Um, but uh, definitely, I think that in the coming decades, there is going to be more variation. There are going to be hard frosts, early springs. It's, it's not going to be a smooth path to a, to a warmer world. So, uh, but it's very variable across the country uh, and across the continents. As we know, Western US, Western Canada, some tremendous droughts that are going on now. There's heat domes last year that caused fires. So it's going to be something that we're all going to, I think, experience a little bit differently through time. But trees are definitely a great thing to be planting, especially fruit trees, right, Susan? Um, Absolutely. So let's, let's all do our bit. Trees suck up carbon dioxide, uh, and that, that helps. Definitely that helps. So um, yeah, I'd say go ahead and, and keep planting, folks. Oh, that is so nice and so inspiring. And and this links right into our contest, which Gary is going to help us find the winner for this contest, because this book, it's just a coincidence that it's launched right now, is called Now is the Time for Trees. And trees are, you guys are foresters, you know better than most. They're the they're what going to help. They are going to help help us with our climate. They're going to help us save the world and make it a better place. So this book will tell us all about it. So the contest today for Now is the Time for Trees, make an impact by planting the world's most valuable resource. Gary, can you help us here? I can, can you tell us? Yes, <laughs> I can yeah. help you. Now we need one of the gentlemen. I'm going to shake the bucket. All the names that were forwarded to you are in a little on a piece of paper in a little plastic bucket. I'm going to shake the bucket and I need one of your guests to tell me when to stop. And that's when I'll pull out the paper. So who wants to do it? <laughs> I can do it. I've... Okay, you ready? All right, yeah. John, here we go. You'll hear it. Hold on. Here we go. Stop. Okay, hold on, please. Let me reach in here. And, and the winner is Richard W. of Allendale, Michigan. Yay, Richard, one of our well Michigan people. Yes. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Yes, I think I've heard of Allendale. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. So, and that's where this book is going. And thank you to everybody who participated in the show today with your comments, with your questions. This show is so much better because of your participation. It's just wonderful to get people's perspectives and point of view. And thank you so much to my two wonderful guests today for coming on the show. And, and also, I want to say we appreciate you and the work you did with the plant hardiness zones here in Canada. Nobody forced you to do it and you guys took it upon yourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan. We're, yeah, we're hoping to do another update uh, in the next, within the next year. And uh, so maybe stay tuned. Thanks. Thanks for this opportunity. Okay. And maybe give a little poke to your colleagues in the United States. I don't know if they're doing updates. We'll have to get them on the show to talk oh, yeah. about it. Yeah. Yep. Maybe they'll, sure. maybe now they will, because they know they're competing with you. That's the thing. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And um, hopefully you will come back again someday and give us the next update. So thank you for joining me today. Sounds good. Thank you, Susan. Okay, well, that's it for the show today. I can't believe another hour has come and gone. Um, if you missed the beginning of the show and you want, or you want to listen to the whole show again, you can go to orchardpeople.com slash podcasts. And that's where I put all the recordings. You download your podcast. You can li listen to previous episodes and learn all sorts of great stuff and meet other wonderful uh, guests from the show. So go to orchardpeople.com slash podcasts for more podcasts or to listen to this one again. Also, if you want to read articles about fruit tree care, you can go to orchardpeople.com and I have articles, ebooks, and a lot more. Finally, I launched my new book as well. And if you want to grab a copy of Grow Fruit Trees Fast, you can go to orchardpeople.com slash grow fruit. And I would love it if you read the book. And uh, I would love to hear your feedback on it as well. So that's all for the show today. I hope you guys will join me again next month when we are going to dig into another great topic. So I'll see you then. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at @urbanfruittrees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.